Hi, this is Ali Iskandar from Islam and Liberty Podcast. This is the second of the four-episode long series featuring Ali Salman. In this week's episode, we discuss further about the principle of wealth creation. On to our discussion. Welcome to the Islam and Liberty Podcast. If you enjoyed this show and wish to find out more about us, find us on our website at islamandlibertynetwork.org. In this episode, we are continuing our four-episode-long series that presents a new way to rediscover the principles of commerce and economics in Islamic context. So if you are just joining us, I recommend you to listen to last week's episode where we lay out and discuss the three principles of Islamic economic framework as proposed by Ali Salman. It serves as a good basis for the upcoming discussion. Joining us again, of course, is Ali Salman, an economist who is CEO and founding member of Islam and Liberty Network and CEO of Institute for Democracy and Economic Affairs. He will be releasing his book, Islamic Economic Framework, which he writes further about this topic and his findings. So today, Ali, we are going to talk about your interpretation of the institutional tenets of Islamic Economic Framework. In your book, you outline that the framework comprises of price freedom, free trade, market regulator, currency, banking, fiscal policy, social protection, and inheritance. To start with, one of the many things that you briefly brushed about last week was the importance of price control, or rather the lack thereof. You talked about a hadith that conveyed how many approached the Prophet with the request for him to fix the prices in the market, but was refused. Concluding, concluding that, it is Allah that pushes the prices up and down. Can you expand more on this philosophy of price freedom? How do people interpret this hadith? Yes, I think uh, the, the discussion um, on the price control and tasreer in um, the Islamic text is, uh, is very revealing, but something which has not been duly um, addressed in the modern discussion on Islamic economics. Uh, and to me, uh, this principle of, of price freedom formed one of the central tenets of uh, an institutional view of uh, Islamic economics. The, the spirit uh, behind the prohibition of any kind of price controls uh, by the Prophet um, uh, is this view that uh, this is against uh, his notion of justice, especially you know, counting on the fact that he was himself uh, a trader and a, and a businessman. So he understood the importance and the, and the risks taken uh, by the traders, uh, especially bringing food stuff from faraway places. And uh, therefore, he didn't intervene in the price setting mechanisms between the producers and the, and the consumer. But at the, at, the same, at the same time, he also laid out, as we have discussed, a very uh, elaborate consumer protection uh, system. Hmm. So I, I think if we just mention uh, price freedom and do not mention about consumer protection measures, then we will get the wrong message. Hmm. So we need to get the complete story of, of how market uh, the uh, how market should be governed. This is the this is essentially how market needs to be governed, in my view, under an Islamic uh, system. How do we avoid, you think, to have this mis- misunderstanding of how price control really works? I'm assuming that you mean that it's not that they're saying that price there is no price control at all, but rather that it is allowed in some ways, but it is better to avoid it. Um, so in, 
I think we're talking about the importance of regulations here hmm. um, and uh, the uh, the the legislative spirit behind uh, the the price control is to ensure um, the you know the the protection of both consumers and producers. And when we when we talk about regulations, they help us to understand in evolving a I would say an ethical framework of market economy. Hmm. And if you uh, you know look at the for instance the the other examples and other uh, these of about about hoarding uh, in which uh, it's it's uh, prohibited and it's uh, it's something which islam discourages you you're, you're uh, referring to the one where uh, umar gave a stern talk uh, when about the the men who sold dried grapes yeah uh y- yes uh, that, that particular incident was about uh, the the i think the 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 ceiling i see okay. um i'm sorry the, floor. the price floor but i am mentioning about uh, let's say if someone comes a, a trader starts uh, hoarding uh, food stock then are we saying that he still should be allowed to uh, to hold it so that the prices can can uh, can be risen and this is this is actually something which uh, which prophet muhammad also discouraged and uh, disapproved totally so if you combine his disapproval of price control and his disapproval of holding then you you actually can derive um, a very balanced welfare system in which he is saying like as a trader i am not stopping you to bring the prices into reduced prices which are fair to according to the market phenomena but as a trader i'm also not allowing you to exploit uh, the 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 uh, the demand situation and do not do not um, supply the food stock or the stuff you have into the market so that that kind of balance is is important so in that sense do you think that um It's not that you are truly controlling the prices in itself, but rather the circumstances of what you are actually looking at the factors which lead to the price rises. Right, right. right? So uh, I think in that approach, um, we are looking at not uh, the price level itself, but we are going, going. Uh, so uh, you know, at the factor. So let's say if the price is high because of increased demand or shortage of supply in real sense. then the then the higher price needs to be tolerated mm. but if the price is high because of uh, exploitation of one agent of the market then it is something which is prohibited then then the state will come into the function so so the so price rise as such should not be cause of concern but need to understand why price is high i see so uh, It's not that they don't allow prices to go high. If let's say the market is really is uh, genuinely devoid of a certain product, especially food, and it has to be high, then it's allowed to be high. Yeah. Yes, as long as, as I said, there's no exploitation, there's no injustice, uh, according to our understanding of the market forces. Yeah. I see. I see. The, do you think then, in that sense, um, Islam prefer? economic freedom over social justice in the sense where oh well the prices are just high sorry we we just can't help it it needs to be high the, i mean the, 
the terms economic freedom and social justice uh, this is interesting that you juxtapose them as as if they are necessarily opposite um in some ways they can be uh, they can lead to different policies but i think in, in the spirit uh, the way i see it uh, freedom leads to justice freedom is fairness freedom leads to to justice for both parties i would not necessarily have a opposite relationship between the two terms uh, although i can i can totally relate to that question in the sense that sometimes actual policies uh either based on the economic freedom or based on the conventional meaning of social justice can be quite opposite hmm do you find that the current social justice definition might be different than when uh the prophet was around well of course these are very modern terms i'm not sure if the term social justice uh or the term economic freedom was was existing or it was used uh by the prophet or uh by the islamic scholars after the prophet so i think these are the terms and the words which we use today to understand how society is um, you know is is uh, experiencing today and and the constructs and institutions of today so it would be very difficult to just apply these uh, these constructs to understand the phenomena maybe 1400 years ago okay i understand So uh let's talk about uh free trade. So one thing that the prophet did when he first if I'm not mistaken uh arrived to Medina is that he opened up a new market that is uh tax free. Can you like maybe just uh talk about how why why he did so? What good point. Um so uh after he established the masjid which was the first institution under the Islamic um I would say Islamic era after Hijra. Uh the the second institution was it which he established was indeed this market. At that time uh there were three or four markets already existing in Medina. Uh and obviously they were controlled uh, by uh, the tribes which were native uh, Jews and Christians and other native tribes. and here comes the the prophet as a leader not in religious not only in religious affairs but also in in worldly matters in the matters of economy and politics so he understood the importance of uh, a commercial center for this new emerging community of muslims who were essentially introducing themselves uh, under uh, a new religious uh, belief system um which is in a way also a revival of old abrahamic traditions mm-hmm. but in in that particular uh, context of course they were presenting a new message a new message in terms of the faith um addressing their economic needs addressing their commercial needs uh was as important as addressing their spiritual needs so i think the market establishment was was the key um and then the in order to gain what we today would call competitive advantage um i think it it goes uh, as the business acumen of prophet muhammad that he he thought that he should not have taxes mm-hmm. in the sense of tariffs so the tariffs uh, the, the the import taxation were were actually uh, brought down to zero so import taxation were present so there were so the markets pre-existing markets used to charge a percentage to any incoming trade karma 
And I think his introduction of zero taxation or zero custom duty was in a way to attract more traders coming into this, this Muslims dominated market, Muslims controlled market, rather than going to other markets. So I think it was moved by that, that spirit. Then do you think that means that uh, Muhammad would discourage taxes? Uh, the, the idea of a state-based tax is something that should not be there at all. So there are two things. So first of all, um, of course, he um, and, and we know that Islam had has definitely a component of zakat, and then um, zakat is uh, has as uh, you know at, at various levels, at income level, at your personal income level, at your if you're doing a business. So it is applicable. So tax is there, and it is it is more a tax on your assets um, and wealth rather than a tax on your income as such. Right, so so that it's clear that uh, you know it need it is needed, but then out but, but, you know besides besides the zakat tax, Prophet also encouraged people to donate voluntarily in the sadaqah, so that also helped in the contribution of Baitul Mal at that time. But then more than but more than these contributions, at that time, there there was also the the, the wars. And the Malay Ghalima and Malay which was uh, which was obtained as a result of the wars, and that also contributed significantly to the revenue of the governments. Then, what well, was there war tax involved during these wars? Uh, there was, uh, I would not call it a, a war tax. I mean, uh, of course, we we understand that uh, a, a tax equivalent to. Um, uh, or in replacement of zakat and usher was imposed on non-Muslims, which is called jizya tax. Uh, but there was a political step. Uh, that was a political arrangement in the sense of um, uh, providing the same level of protection to non-Muslims. But the, uh, the, the revenues of war came um, by the possession of the properties of the enemy tribes or the enemy uh, countries. And those assets um, could be uh, could be fixed asset, could be mobile assets, were then distributed according to certain ratio in Muslim army, uh, in the state, uh, prophet himself or his family. So, so, so we see that kind of revenue coming from uh, the victories. I would say. So, in the sense that it was, it's not that he is against tax. It's just that he would like them to have no tax to promote free trade, but would apply it if if the circumstances need be. Yeah, I think that's a that's a fair that's a fair conclusion, uh, and um, we can talk about it under the uh, zakat more elaborately. But uh, there's certainly a need. If there's a need of raising taxation within these boundaries, one can look into it. All right. So, as I understand this, that um, all this is uh, is regulated by an office uh, uh, that is that is state based. Uh, can you talk about talk about it a bit more? So, um, the idea of uh, Hisba, the idea of market inspector, uh, was introduced um, in Prophet time, and that is in in today's context. In today's sense, it will be a state controlled entity. So at the time, it wasn't considered state controlled. It was. It was. It was state controlled. Yeah. It, um, and so that entity, you know, in that sense, could be an individual, 
in in that uh, in that time nominated by the prophet um what was uh, his or her role to 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 for instance to make sure that uh, the contracts between buyer and sellers are enforced to ensure that you know, there is no deception in in the marketplace taking place to make sure that um the the, the information is not exploited to make sure that the the transactions actually happen within the designated marketplace not outside the marketplace and to you know weights and measures so if 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 you are selling 1 kilo of dates then is it 1 kilo or are is a seller some you know some doing uh, is seller doing something else in terms of weights and measures so these kind of standards and these kind of uh, the values uh, were enforced uh, by that inspector or or both the said um but if you read the mandate again there was no price control so except price control i would say they were pretty stringent uh, in in their measures uh would you say then that means that since pre prophet time that islam has always kind of uh, leaned towards something that is more state based rather than privately owned there are other things to be regulated by state rather than private uh privately say like a banking thing you know the um, trying to say Ma, uh, you know we have talked about the pr- private property um mm. and I, i think as a, as a uh, at a very basic level islam acknowledges um and allows uh, the creation and expansion of private property but when it comes to state um islam acknowledges that is it's an entity which is needed to make rules and uh, to enforce them uh, equally Uh, across all segments of society i think we understand appreciate that there are resources particularly natural resources and land in which the state ownership or kind of collective ownership is preferred over individual or private ownership so state is is there um in terms of uh, it's is this well defined market but then the trade itself uh, the businesses uh, are are left to pretty much individuals but i think these concepts have evolved over centuries and it may not be possible for us to have that kind of exact separation now in the, in the historical sense can you like briefly talk about it maybe like what's the difference between now and then um well some you know um for instance even if you go back to the to the um, uh, history when um, the uh, second caliph of islam um sayyidna umar when he waged wars and was victorious um against the uh, persian empire um what he discovered was that there was an elaborate system of government uh elaborate constitution uh, was existing and he adopted uh, that constitution uh, because he and he thought that it was very suitable uh, to administer the affairs of an expanding state in in the in this in the same sense um yeah. the for instance if you if you talk about um let's say democracy uh, totally in a in a different sphere there was the democracy as in as understood today was not understood for you know a thousand years ago 
and so some of these institutions have evolved over years and uh, you know we may not be able to exactly see their their true precedence in that time but all we are doing here all we are discussing here is what kind of principles uh, can be can be derived from from those experiences you're saying that we have to always constantly evolve with the times and it's not possible to just simply um, stick to having a literal interpretation of the Quran, especially now that we are in a more globalized world where uh, ideas are disseminated so much easier than the last time. Yeah. Um, well, you see, that's, that's I mean, the, the, it's, it's always been the case when someone has understood Quran, especially I'm talking about the scholars and uh, the jurists of Islam, uh, they have applied their own understanding of the context, their own understanding of the vocabulary of the words, and they cannot claim that this is this is uh, exactly got into divine uh, understanding. So these notions and these interpretations have always existed, and we should welcome uh, kind of competition in these interpretations. Hmm. Okay, so then maybe you can talk uh, talk about how the gold currency, I mean, uh, the abolishment of the gold, uh, gold standard uh, was not that long ago. It's around less than, it's 70 years ago or so. Um, yeah. And so it's pretty much a new thing, even though in a sense, as I understood it, fiat currency has, has uh, to some degree existed uh, in, in bronze coins, but it's still a, a fiat, Fiat currency in this size is still wholly new to human in general, especially to Islam. Then, uh, so maybe you can talk about the difference of how people see gold, uh, gold standard, and fiat currency in Islamic context. Uh, this is a subject which again has not been uh, has not received adequate attention in the in the Islamic economics uh, context, and um, we have mostly talked about um, uh, riba. Um, in terms of um, currency, um, the, 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 the main difference between a fiat currency and an, and an intrinsic currency is that uh, when we talk about gold and silver and, and bronze, we are talking about the intrinsic value of the, the, the metal, uh, which, which defines the, the, the value contained in, those, in, in that currency. Whereas in the fiat currency, we are talking about the value created by the authority of a central government. If you, if you go back to the history, uh, what we do realize that the, let's say, talking about gold dinar, there was this practice of uh, gold dinar at the time of the Prophet and different um, civilizations were practicing you know the dinar of their time but they were also and it's also understood that the state was behind it it was still the state which was minting the coins but the uh, the value of the currency was not determination of the state or the king the value of the currency was in the uh, the metal itself hmm. so the state was there but then how, how would um, people just value this metal? Say like, if I say I value a camel at one gold, wouldn't, wouldn't I, in a sense, value that gold to a certain amount? Uh, I think that we can leave it to uh, the, the customs and the social norms um, at, you know, at present in the, in the human society. It is uh, very difficult to 
I would say quantify these these measures, especially over um, over a historical time period, um, and the the value of uh, how much gold coins are needed to buy a camel is um, is essentially a determinant of um, of how much gold can be minted and how much of that exists. Um, and what is the value, uh, what is the subjective valuation in the hands of those people. So, so, so people would actually define it, it themselves. And um, we don't find in this case an explicit commandment. Let's say we find a commandment for riba or a religious tax on zakat and other, uh, other economic matters. It's, it's rather difficult to find an explicit Islamic commandment about, um, about the currency itself. Uh, there, you know, therefore, we have taken this, this uh, view based on the principal understanding of how it should be evaluated. I see. So then, uh, if there is no true commandment, can you, can you, I hear that there are disagreements to the use of fiat currency. Can you maybe say why it happens and why why is there a call for going back to the gold standard? Well, in, in the, if you talk about general economic argument, the calls to go back to the gold standard is essentially uh, based on uh, this, uh, this analysis that uh, since the introduction of fiat currency, and especially there was, there was fiat currency uh, available, you know, for, for centuries, right? but then the value correspondent uh, to uh, either the intrinsic value of the metal or later on it, when it was still being printed, it was linked to gold reserve. So this was called gold back currency, but it, may, it could have been still printed on a piece of paper. So that is, uh, and and since you know, from 1940s and then eventually 1971 in that time period that gold back currencies were were reversed uh, and we don't have that kind of uh, official gold back currencies anymore. Um, people have associated economists economists have associated that that step with um, rising inflation, uh, also with unnecessarily power of certain states uh, to actually impose their own uh, value valuation of the currency on on other nations um, also the uh, the fluctuation in the currency which is possible let's say by, by excessive printing of currency if a central government prints uh, 1000 ringgit central government, there is no stopping a central government to print 1 million ringgit over mm. a day. Uh, if it, of course, it is not linked or backed with, with gold, there is no authority. There is no, I would say there is no rule, it's discretion. So if the bank governor or the president of a country believes that no, uh, let's print 1000 million ringgit in a day, they can print. But you can imagine what havoc it will bring to the ordinary people they will wipe out the purchasing power in a day. So it will be a, it will be a theft. Uh, so I think from that ethical point of view, uh, we can relate it to um, uh, maybe uh, also Islamic principles. But as I said, I, I 
do not find any explicit commandment on this. This is based on our understanding of economics see. and understanding of the ethical principles behind it. And uh, is there any wording on Islamic beliefs or thoughts? I'm assuming there's no Islamic beliefs or thoughts on something like cryptocurrency, which is really yeah. new. No. So that means, does it ultimately matter to you that what currency we use? And is there any true Islamic currency to you? I think I would, uh, I would hesitate to say that there is true Islamic currency um, because these are the, these are the concepts which we have derived based on our understanding or based on the ethical uh, understanding of the Islamic economic system. What we uh, do know, uh, for instance, that even at, at the time of Prophet and and the time of the first four caliphs, there is a prohibition of hoarding of uh, the precious metal. So um, this was this was considered um, illegal and immoral. So the idea was again to allow uh, the circulation of metal in the market rather than being allowed to be to be hoarded. Uh, so I would not I would not call it an ideal Islamic currency, but I would say that there are certain principles which we need to apply and see if the currency which is circulated in the market is according to those principles or not. I see. So it's more to the principles more than um, uh, currency really doesn't matter, but it's more to the principle ultimately. Right. Right. Okay. So uh, can we uh, move to Reba? Can you expand a bit or more on Reba? I understand that this is something to be uh, quite contentious, to say the least. This was uh, so the, the the issue of Reba um, uh, usury has received uh, perhaps the the greatest attention of Islamic scholars of Islamic economics over the last one hundred years, and um, I'm not going to get into. Uh, a very scholarly discussion here, but if we if we go back uh, to the um, to the times of Prophet again, when he abolished uh, riba, uh, what he was referring to essentially uh, interest accrued on loans taken and loans like cash loans taken, and if we apply that strict principle today, uh, that that prohibition still remains intact. Uh, of course, there was this um, social um, fact of exploitation that those loans uh, were taken um, at a very exploitative uh, rate and then person who is supposed to give back the money would be not able to pay back the, the, the entire sum of money, the principal, and he might be indebted for life. So those kind of considerations are still relevant at individual level and at, at the social level and maybe at a national level. Um, yeah, but um, there, there is um, you know, a lot of discussion and, and the mainstream, uh, mainstream argument of uh, the Islamic economics currently is that any kind of interest, whether there is a, an interest charged by a bank or individual uh, trust against a loan, uh, and trust against uh, car financing, home financing, etc., is considered uh, haram um, uh, as riba. But 
uh, at the same time we also have uh, we have understood that this this position is now disputed um, so deposits in the bank and the interest on deposits which we de uh, which we have on our on savings is considered by some islamic scholars not as riba in the conventional sense there is recognition of the uh, the fact that the banks needs to recover some charges against the services they provide so that is admitted as um, that is permissible uh, similarly uh, islamic finance has introduced uh, the mortgages uh, for car for housing on on these uh, on these matters so i think the 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 field is is uh, now open mm. and um, if if to put it very simply um, i would i would go for that simpler definition of riba that, that is um, an interest charge on a cash loan uh, and strictly cash to you yes uh, so if you if you if you if you take uh, if i take 100 dollars uh, from me and if i am obliged to pay back that 100 dollars with an excess so that is riba okay whether me as a bank or uh or as an individual that doesn't make a difference and whether i am taking it for um a recreation purpose or um to meet some uh, social need uh marrying my daughter or investing in a business it doesn't make a difference right. uh, riba strictly applies on the cash loans so nothing on the credit as well um yeah so so uh, by credit you mean as in um i'm uh, as in using credit uh because loan loan must be money but then credit in a in a sense is money as well do you know do you know what i'm trying so to say if you if you mean to say that let's say we are we are talking about financing hmm. of assets okay. uh yeah. then there are then there are different ways of addressing it in the islamic finance see right so so we are talking about murabaha uh, uh, financing uh, the lease financing which are admitted um, in the islamic finance now so if you want to buy an asset and if you approach a bank to help you buy an asset uh, there is a prevalent market price but then you are not able to pay in advance so the price which you will pay over over a time period would be in in installments but at least that price would be higher price than the cash price so it will be marked up price right. so so that kind of uh, credit based financing is admissible and that's that's where the the, the whole islamic finance comes from but let's say if there is no islamic finance uh let's say there is no islamic bank hypothetically my view is that uh, and this is the view which um, Akram Khan in his book What is Wrong with Islamic Economics has is is elaborated that even in the absence of these Islamic banks and Islamic finance the conventional financing system currently is uh, is already advanced uh, sufficiently enough uh, that it is it should not be considered riba anymore um and that is the the position which I am um, taking is that riba has to be something that is unjust and before it is considered riba so this could be very uh, subjective and again we should leave it to the to the the social norms um so we so we would understand that if 
it is a matter of um, um, so so today we have still loan sharks in in our society and that everyone would understand it is unethical unjust and it is the exploitation of a need of a poor person and it's easy to spot to say that this is this is not allowed but um, I think if we if we strictly apply ourselves to that definition of uh, cash loans and interest on cash loans then we can actually avoid these uh, uh, you know these discussions uh, and apply that okay we uh, we do not want we do not want to get into discussion of what is just and what is unjust but let's apply the basic principle so i want to get back to why interest uh, modern interest can be seen as as something that is un-islamic um from my understanding is that riba has to be in a sense uh, unjustly made before before uh it is considered riba because there was one text i believe where if it's doubled and then quadrupled, then it should be not um, allowed. In my thinking is that if it's unjust, then it's not allowed. But what I want to know is then, can we not see uh, current interest as something that is allowed because both parties offer and understand what they are signing up for without coercion? So it should be something that is allowed in my point of view. Um, would you say that that's some modern understanding? I think you see the 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 the, the principle. Um, if 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 we generalize this principle, and let's say if these if any of these two parties uh, agreeing on a particular transaction, um, free of coercion, then we. Uh, they enter into a risky terrain, in my view, from an Islamic point of view, because uh, uh, we like it or not, uh, the the general system of Islamic uh, legal system is that there are there is an upper moral authority. Uh, so if we believe that moral authority, um, uh, then the mutual consent between two parties may not be sufficient to undertake that transaction because we still have to seek guidance and clearance from that general rule, rule which is established. So if you if you believe that our general rule is that no interest to be involved in cash loans, then that rule has to be enforced regardless of whether the two individuals happily agree to do that transaction or not. I see. Makes sense. Okay. Um, so unfortunately, well, we are out of time. And so I have to call the end of the episode here. So thank you for your time, Ali. It's been a pleasure. Thank um, you. So do you have any closing remark before we sign off? To, um, I think to, to summarize the discussions we had today, I would, I would uh, refer back to the three principles. And um, I would say that today we have uh, discussed uh, important institutional components of the principle uh, of wealth creation and if you look back to our discussion today we have essentially discussed prices and how prices uh, needs to be uh, looked at in, in price freedom the importance of price freedom we have looked at uh, the trade and trade taxation we have uh, talked about currency 
uh, we have talked about um, the financing and issues of uh, of interest and we have talked about the regulations and the market regulations which are needed um, and i think this is a this is a fair representation of uh, the concept of uh, wealth creation uh, and um, i hope that this kind of discussion can enrich the current discourse on islamic economics further Oh, I hope so too. So, dear listeners, next week we will be continuing the discussion as we expand on the third principle of uh, wealth distribution. So, that will be under Zaka. Uh, we will talk about Zaka, walkouts, and inheritance. So, join us next week for the third episode of this four-part two. And again, I would like to thank Ali for this opportunity to discuss about this complex and interesting subject. Subject. So, if you'd like to learn more about us, come visit us on our website on islamandlibertynetwork.org. And if you enjoyed the show and would like to support us, there is a donation button on the site. So, thank you for listening, and we hope you to and we hope to see you next week.